Hey there, this is Rob Woods and welcome to episode 6 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in charity fundraising and who wants ideas and inspiration for how to raise more money, love their job and make a bigger difference. And in today's episode, I'm going to be focusing my attention on the idea of fundraising resilience. And I'm going to devote a whole episode just to this topic, largely because it is so underrated. Uh, I think if you go to conferences, people talk about all sorts of other things, but rarely do they focus, in my view, enough attention on the power of resilience to affect your results. And yet, there is no topic more worthy of your focus if you want to be happy and successful in your work than resilience. This episode of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast is brought to you by Bright Spot Mastery Programmes. So if you need to increase income in corporate partnerships or major donor and trust fundraising, these programmes will help. As well as the advanced strategies you learn on the training days, you receive one-to-one coaching to help you put those powerful techniques into practice. To find out more about the Corporate Mastery and Major Gifts Mastery programmes, head over to brightspotfundraising.co.uk. The start of my journey into this topic happened about five years ago because I came across a book by a professor, Angela Duckworth, and the title of the book was Grit. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. And uh, the gist of the story she tells right at the start of that book is of how years and years ago she'd been uh, an elementary school teacher and she was teaching maths. And she started to notice this pattern whereby um, at the start of any given term, there would be various math tests which the children in her class would do. And she noticed that some children did well on those tests at the beginning of the term and some did not so well. But then when she looked at the test scores at the end of a term, whilst there were some people who were doing well at the start and the finish, there were always some people whose test scores had gone relatively downwards by the end of the term. And even more interestingly, there were some people whose maths ability had appeared to be mediocre at the start of term, they weren't getting great scores, who were now at the end of term doing much better and sometimes indeed getting the best scores of all at the end of the term. And she was a very curious person and she wondered what the difference was. And the more she looked at it, because she was working with these children day in, day out, her view of what the difference was, was that the ones whose scores improved, it was not about maths ability. It was simply this quality they appeared to have of being willing to work harder, especially when things weren't working out. They were were able to keep going and, and try new things Uh, and over time overcome the challenges and therefore improve their skill at maths. And uh, she called this resilience or grit. And when she looked at what research was out there in terms of understanding this quality, she found very little academic research. So to cut a long story short, she uh, left her teaching job. She went and became an academic, a psychologist, and she's devoted uh, years and years of her life to researching this quality of resilience. And she's come to learn certain things about resilience and grit uh, that uh, A, we now understand a little bit better, and B, from that research, she's also able to give us some advice backed up by research as to what you can do if you want to get better at this quality of grit. So when Professor Angela Duckworth talks about grit or resilience, 
she uses a couple of definitions. One of them is grit is passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Grit is being willing to work hard for those goals. And grit is living life like it's a marathon and not a sprint. These are three of the key ideas in her book. Uh, but one of the first things she realised once she became a, a psychologist is that if you're going to study something, it really helps if you can have some way of measuring it. And she decided to create a questionnaire or a what she calls the grit score that is a s simple test that anyone could answer fairly quickly. It only takes five or ten minutes. It's a set, a set of questions. And by answering these questions, anyone is able to get a sense of how resilient they currently are. It's not fixed. It doesn't mean how resilient you are going to be for the rest of your life. But at any stage in time, if you take the score, it can give you a sense of it. So in this grit score, there are questions like setbacks don't discourage me, I don't give up easily, or I am a hard worker. And then other questions like new ideas often distract me from previous ones, and my interests change from year to year. So the first two, two of those questions, um, saying yes to them would help score you relatively gritty, and uh, whereas obviously the second, second ones are highlighting less resilient uh, behaviours and attitudes. And um, each of these scores, uh, you get a score of one to, one to five, you can mark it. And by the end of the, this, this questionnaire, you've got a sense of how currently resilient you are in your approach to life. And if you're curious about that, I'm sure you can find it, Google it, or it's, it's in the back of Duckworth's book called Grit. So once Duckworth had this Grit score, one of the first things she did with it was she took it to a place called West Point. Uh, which apparently is the military or a, a key military academy in the United States. And um, of course, if you're running a military academy, you're using a lot of resource and money to train people up uh, to be future successful officers. And it's very important to, to know how to choose the right people who are most likely to succeed. And uh, apparently, the generals running West Point had, you know, they used various scores and ways of selecting and measuring people to do with their IQ and their stamina and their emotional intelligence and leadership potential and all the rest of it. Um, but what they found is, whilst any one of those has some effect or, or some correlation with how well an officer would do in three or four years time following being at West Point, what they found is the single most accurate predictor of how successful someone would become as an officer three or four years after going to West Point was not any one of those, it was Duckworth's simple grit score. I.e., more than any other factor, your resilience would affect how well you do, would do in that particular walk of life. So what Duckworth did is she took the, that same uh, grit score, uh, that test, and she's tested it in a, a host of other environments, you know, from teachers in teacher training, to salespeople, to uh, whether someone's going to be successful at university. And even in the United States, there's quite a, a big phenomenon called spelling bees or spelling competitions. Even in the context of spelling competitions for children, more powerful at predicting your success in a spelling competition than your verbal dexterity or um, ability to memorise words and so on even more likely to predict how well you'll do in spelling competitions is how resilient are you according to the GRIT score. 
And whilst I don't have a PhD in this stuff and I haven't got hard data to, to conclusively prove this to you, all I can say is that in my more than a decade interviewing very successful fundraisers, those who raise more than most of us, I can tell you that, that what Duckworth found in these other walks of life, I have observed to also be true in fundraising over the years when I interview people who are very successful and I study their success, time and again, I see this theme of resilience in the way they approach their work. And that is why there are a few topics more important uh, for a fundraiser to study and, and value and nurture than resilience. And that's why I'm having a look at this topic today. And one reason this is so important is that the human brain loves the idea of a quick fix. And if you don't believe me, look in any newspaper and in the advert section, you will find uh, adverts selling you a quick fix along the lines of um, become uh, an internet millionaire in four easy steps or lose eight stone in a month or these, the reason these adverts will always be there is because the human brain wants to believe that success and progress is achieved in one big, giant, miraculous leap. Whereas if you think carefully about anything in your life that is genuinely successful and you're genuinely proud of, then I suspect you will find that it was never one big thing, one big stroke of luck. But any lasting success was achieved through a, a, a series of small steps, day after day, what some would call incremental gains. And in any one of those stories, there was a moment where something went wrong. And it's certainly true of your, fund, you know, your greatest fundraising success as well. There will have been a time where something went wrong because a colleague wouldn't give you the information or the donor didn't call you back or whatever. And uh, in that moment, had you been less gritty, you would not have picked yourself up and found another way to, to get around the obstacle or keep trying again and again. And so you would not have got that result. Your existing best fundraising successes and in other areas of your life, I think you will find they have stemmed from resilient behavior as much as from being smart or skillful or any of the rest of those uh, perceived valuable qualities. So, what can we do uh, if we agree that resilience is important in fundraising success? What can any of us do to improve it? Well, in this uh, session, I'm going to look at three key ideas that uh, I have observed to be helpful for myself and other people that I coach and train. And the first is to do with growth mindset. The idea is develop more of a growth mindset than you might currently have. And this idea comes from uh, Duckworth noticing a correlation in her grit scores with how well people test in terms of their growth mindset. And if you haven't heard much about the concept of growth mindset before, uh, it was coined, I think, by Professor Carol Dweck in a seminal book called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. And in this fabulous and inspiring book, she demonstrates the difference between what you might call a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And it is what it sounds. If you've got a fixed mindset about something, broadly you believe things along the lines of, you can learn new things, but you can't really change how intelligent you are. 
Whereas a growth mindset belief is, no matter how intelligent you are, you can always change, it, change that level of intelligence quite a bit. Uh, and of course, some of us have a fixed attitude to one area of our life or one area of skills and a growth mindset in others. Um, and no, you know, it's a spectrum, of course, you're never just at one place along this spectrum. And in this fascinating book, Dweck shares a bunch of studies which are really, really persuasive. And they're a real wake up call for your own attitudes as to how important uh, innate ability or intelligence or sportiness or whatever quality, quality it might be really are. You know, there's a particular study where uh, once children who had been performing poorly at maths are taught in a really quite different way where all of the signals they are sent are that the, the most important thing is hard work and practice and that innate ability or talent is completely irrelevant and whenever they got 9 or 10 out of 10 on a test they're not praised for being good at maths all of the signals are about how hard they worked to achieve their results then um, there are, this research has stunning results about those children's uh, scores and ability rocketing up and exceeding uh, the scores of children from other schools that had been perceived to, to be better at maths. So uh, if you're curious about that, uh, I highly recommend the book called Mindset. I guess it really stands to reason when you really look at the idea of growth or fixed mindset, which is that if in any area we have received the signal that whether you've got a particular score or result in something is largely to do with your talent rather than other factors like hard work, then uh, when you are presented with something that's quite difficult, with, some, with a, a, a difficult challenge, at some level your brain can't quite see the point in striving harder. And that is why Professor Duckworth suggests that growth mindset and your resilience correlate so, so clearly because in life and, for instance, in, in our field, in fundraising, sooner or later this is going to be a challenge or something really difficult going to show up. And if you are relatively resilient in your current attitude and behaviours, you're going to find a way to keep going because you don't believe that success is already preordained by you know, your own skill, your own ability, or the size of your charity's brand, for instance, you're going to keep plugging away and you're going to find a way to solve that problem. So growth mindset is incredibly uh, important. So if you're listening to this and you would like to get relatively more resilient and you see value in that and uh, you're, you're thinking, what could I do practically to do this? Then within the idea of growth mindset, my first tip would be every day, towards the end of the day, or as you go for home from work, ask yourself, what have I learned today? And if you've got yourself a notebook and you just spend five minutes making a few notes in that, in that notebook or journal at the end of each workday, you will find that not only do you start to improve your performance because you, you, you don't repeat mistakes nearly as often because you latch onto them and you learn from them in a, in a more conscious way, but also, even more importantly, you'll start to value learning and growth as just as important as whatever the overt explicit results achieved in any given day or in any, or in any given event were. Secondly, do learning behaviours. Um, so, you know, the best individual giving fundraisers I know 
are always testing in the way that they are uh, communicating with their supporters and donors. Uh, this uh, fabulous fundraiser I sometimes work with called Craig Linton, and who, whenever he does any communication to, to his supporters, A, it's designed to potentially, you know, in, increase some some giving or in, increase the the chances that they'll 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 contact the charity. But B, there's this other objective he's always got, which is to test something, to test a hypothesis about a particular kind of headline, a particular photo, particular story. So it's all everything is a test. Whereas I think other fundraisers see each piece of communication or each tactic primarily and only about whether it gets today's result. And within that, another angle on that is to quite deliberately seek incremental gains. So there is a fabulous fundraiser I've worked with a lot in the past called and Andy Salno, who works for a medium-sized cancer charity. And for several years, I worked with him and, and, and did coaching sessions with him most months. And again and again, he would arrive at those coaching sessions with ideas and questions for how he could make just small tweaks, small moves to the approach he's he and his team had to the events that that charity runs and across those three years we worked together the uh, income and his team were, was achieving went up by a million pounds so by the third year they were raising a million pounds more than than when we first started working together and when i say that story to others people say well what was the thing what was the tactic and in truth there were dozens and dozens of small tactics small things incremental gains which Andy worked out and then with his team implemented, which led to this enormous growth over a period of time. And that is right out of the growth mindset playbook, this notion of looking for the small improvements, uh, each of which have their own value rather than looking for the big quick fix. And the third thing you can do if you want to enhance your growth mindset and therefore get the benefits of more resilience in your life is to try adopting this belief, which I found really helpful. It goes like this. I have not failed if I gave 100% effort and I learned something. And so uh, what this does for me is even when things go wrong and at some level I could be feeling the sting of intense disappointment, it helps my my brain search for some benefit, some learning, something I won't do again next time. And I totally appreciate, um, this is true in my, my life and doubtless yours, it can be easier said than done when something's gone badly wrong to actually practice that belief. But I really recommend you at least try it out um, because if you think of something in your life you really value, some relationships, some job, some success you have or some skill you have, if you're really honest you can track back some of the positive result you're getting now or skill level you have now, you can track that back to some previous mistake or error you made in the past and it's largely because of that previous mistake that you went out and you tried harder or you tried a different approach. So um, always be looking to learn something even when things go wrong. Um, that as a belief and a mindset can really help you if you want to become more resilient.
And the second main area I recommend you look at if you want to become more resilient is to do with valuing and cherishing the idea of optimism. Uh, is the glass half full or half empty? And uh, a concept that really helped me get my head around this and how I could look at it slightly differently uh, was to do with a particular experiment and I'm going to tell you very briefly about this experiment. Uh, it is quite unpleasant. I don't condone the fact that this happened to these dogs but at the moment this is the best way I'm aware of to bring to life this idea of learned helplessness. So in the experiment, uh, I gather it was done in the 1960s, I think, uh, there were some dogs and uh, they're in a pen and there was an electric shock which came through the floor. And in one version of the experiment, um, there was a lever on the wall and if the dogs bashed the lever, then the uh, electricity would stop. But uh, another group of dogs were even less fortunate and there wasn't even a lever there so whatever they did there was just the suffering. The second stage of the experiment though was where it got interesting because in the second stage they're in a different pen there was no lever but there was a low barrier between them and a place of safety and when the shock started the dogs who previously had had the lever so they had learned that there was something you could do to stop the pain. They looked up, they were willing to try anything and they jumped over the fence into the place of safety. And unfortunately, the dogs who in the first stage of the experiment had learned that whatever you do, the suffering just goes on and on. They didn't even look up to see this place of escape. They just suffered on and on. And uh, clearly it's an unpleasant experiment, but, uh, it does bring to life for me the idea of how the, the idea of learned helplessness versus learned optimism. And in the human world, the, the story which springs to mind is a couple of years ago, I was getting off a train, I think it was in Stafford Station, and as I got off this busy train, there was a young woman uh, sitting on the, the bench on the train station and she was clearly unhappy and she was saying to her friend on the phone no I'm telling you it's completely rampacked there's no space on the train I can't get on and then there's a pause uh, as if the person she was talking to was was uh, giving her some encouragement and then she 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 um she answered again and the words she used will forever remain etched in my brain because they were so surprising to me she said, no, no, I'm telling you, there is no, no space. It's always the same. It's because it's October. It's always the same. As soon as it's winter, everything turns to shit. And dear listener, uh, I try to keep my language fairly clean when I uh, teach and on these podcasts. But uh, so I apologize if I've offended you. But word for word, that is what she said. And I used exactly verbatim what she said, because how's that for a, a belief system? I mean, <laughs> if you're living in the southern Mediterranean, you could get away with that kind of belief because winter's not very long. But the, she lives in the middle of England and that, you know, she's going to have six to eight months of what some would call winter where she's um, extrapolating from that winter to how results are going to go in her life. Now, most interesting about, about this story is when I walked along further down the platform, guess what I saw? 
there were a couple of train carriages which were fairly clear there was space and even there were seats and the reason I'm telling you this story is at some level I believe this is similar to the learned helplessness of the dogs in the experiment I explained just a moment ago and I'm saying though it's easy to um, kind of think well, why why didn't she look up why didn't she look harder along the train platform why didn't those dogs look up actually in my own life I know that once I'm in a state if I allow myself to get stressed too overwhelmed then my physiology crumples and so does my mentality and the truth is if I believe that everything is difficult now or it's someone else's fault and there's nothing I can do about it then I have noticed that I too am less likely to metaphorically look along to the end of the train platform and find a way out of my current predicament. I don't know if you can find a reference in your own life for where sometimes you get in a state and actually you, you, you believe there's nothing that can be done whereas in hindsight you realise actually there probably were some moves you could have made. So if we are relatively optimistic about life, about fundraising, about our colleagues, about our supporters and donors, then I believe it's easier to be more resilient in our approach to our fundraising and to find ways to solve problems and make the relationships work and make the fundraising work as well. So the research by Seligman and Meyer, which is quoted in Duckworth's book, finds that optimists or people who score higher on scores, questionnaires to do with optimism, they remain healthier, they live longer. Um, in sales environments, people who score highly in optimism scores uh, tend to, at min minimum, outsell between 20 and 40% compared to those who are more pessimistic. Um, and Duckworth says that people with high grit scores, they tend to be relatively more optimistic people. Um, if you're <laughs> curious or you know, sceptical, I highly recommend you read up on, for instance, the academic research by people like Seligman and Meyer to, get, to find, find the depth of those studies and just to prove to yourself uh, that there is some substance there. So through my courses and my coaching, I have the privilege of seeing some fabulous fundraisers work hard and get some wonderful results. And one such example that springs to mind was someone called Caroline uh, from Action Against Hunger. She's a fabulous fundraiser. And on our Major Gifts Mastery program, she told the story of having originally worked with her colleagues and put in a proposal to a particular trust and it failing and being rejected. And then her having the courage and optimism to look at that proposal and galvanise effort within herself and her colleagues to, to completely rewrite that same proposal and to take it back to that same trust a few weeks later, which she did. And at that point, it, you know, she'd improved the, the messaging and made it more simple and much more real and emotionally meaningful to the readers of that proposal. And that second time, rather than getting zero money, they got the gift of £300,000, which is a larger gift than, at that, than Caroline had at that stage ever received before in her fundraising career. And whilst part of this story is about how, how she changed the proposal and the particular technical things that we teach on our courses, 
In a sense, the even more interesting thing is how Caroline managed to galvanize the, the courage and the energy in herself and others to start from scratch at all. And I would say that's because of her optimistic mindset. And I think optimists do three things. One, they're able to see things as they really are, crucially, not worse than, than they are. She didn't think see the initial proposal as better than it was. She was honest about it. But crucially, unlike a pessimist, she didn't see it as worse than it really was. Secondly, she's able to see things better than they are. So believe in and see a proposal and a result that would be much better. And uh, that's why optimists do better, I believe, because if you can then see it that way, then you have a fighting chance of step three, making it that way and doing the work to actually um, make those improvements. So if you're listening to this and you've decided you would like to be as optimistic as possible, and you're wondering, but what can I do about it? I've got a couple of ideas. Firstly, if you're in a large charity or a medium-sized one, then network like crazy and seek out people in your organization who do seem to achieve more success. And you'll find that almost always a lot of that success came from them being resourceful and optimistic in the face of challenges and therefore overcoming them. If you're not in a larger organization, then network as much as you can outside of your organization. And in the meantime, make sure you access examples of people being resourceful and overcoming challenges by reading blogs and listening to other podcasts that help you at a, an emotional level believe that a, an optimistic approach, a resourceful approach, pays you back. And secondly, if you would like to think and feel and act more optimistically, more positively, I would say a key to that is ask yourself a better question. So at, at one level, at the level of meaning, ask yourself, what else could be going on here? What else could this mean? It feels like I failed. It feels like this problem is just impossible to solve in the context of this particular charity or this particular donor. But what actually is another interpretation of what appears to have happened? And then even more powerfully, at the level of focus, ask yourself a question along the lines of, what else could I try? It feels like I've done everything, but if I knew I had more options, what else could I try to get the result that I really, really want? And I've got a couple of tips in making these questions work. Number one is, if you ask these questions in the same state as you were in when you first experienced the difficult situation and when you first felt overwhelmed by it, you're really unlikely to get a different and better answer. So key one is change your state. At its simplest, get up from your desk, go for a walk, go and talk to a, a colleague you get on well with, just move, do something. So when you come back in that slightly different state, then I suggest you will have a far better chance of asking these questions on your own with a notebook or even with a colleague and finding different and better answers in that new state. Well, as I near the end of this session, I'd like to thank you so much for listening to all my various ideas about how any of us can go about growing our resilience. As you can tell, there just are no quick fixes, but I hope that if nothing else, I've helped you to notice your own resilience and to value this quality just as highly as any of your other talents. And then, in addition to this, to briefly recap the main ideas, I've talked about the implications of Professor Duckworth's findings in terms of three things. 
Firstly, mindset. Why and how you might nurture your growth mindset. Secondly, optimism. We covered some ideas for practicing and nurturing your ability to look on the bright side, even and especially when things aren't exactly going according to plan. Thirdly, meaning, and some ways for finding a different meaning to what happens, and how that makes it easier to then respond resourcefully. If you'd like to go back to the key ideas I explored in this episode, do take a look at the show notes on our Brightspot website. And if you found today's episode helpful, it would be fantastic if you could leave a review so that other people are more likely to listen and benefit from these ideas. Thanks again for listening, and best of luck growing your ability to be gritty and enjoy your fundraising. And I look forward to talking to you again next time.